Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, the Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's actions, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of alleged child abuse. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Highways are the backbone of infrastructure in the United States. Ribbons of stone and blacktop sprawl across nearly every corner of the nation, creating a 164,000-mile-long network. These roads bridge the gaps between cities and towns, but most importantly, they connect people. And every summer, families all over the country pack into their cars for a time-honored tradition, the road trip. This summer, we're setting out on our own cults road trip a journey that will take us all across the U.S., uncovering six salacious tales of religious groups along the way. But like everyone else, we know how these road trips go. After hours of staring out at the horizon and bickering with loved ones, we all need to take a break, stretch our legs, and grab a bite to eat. If your family's on the road this summer looking for a quick meal, keep your eyes peeled for a Yellow Deli Diner. There are 15 of these hippie-esque establishments all over the United States, from California to Tennessee. The restaurant serves delicious salads, sandwiches, and desserts, perfect for anyone making a pit stop. But if you spend enough time there, you'll notice the Yellow Deli isn't your average diner. Look beyond the kitschy aesthetic and turn your attention to the people behind the counter. Every one of them is a part of a group called the Twelve Tribes, a group that's been accused of child abuse. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is a special series presented by Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This summer, Cults is hitting the road. We're traveling from coast to coast to investigate the people and places that host the most notorious religious groups in the United States. So put on your shades, roll down the window, and kick up your feet as the rubber meets the road. Our cross-country journey is just getting started. Our first stop is at the Twelve Tribes Commune, a Christian group in New England founded by Albert Eugene Spriggs. 
The organization made waves in the Vermont village of Island Pond in the early 80s when accusations of widespread child abuse sparked local panic. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Tucked away in an area fondly referred to as the Northeast Kingdom is a quiet little vacation spot called Island Pond, Vermont. The serene body of water is surrounded by a lush forest full of centuries-old birch and maple trees. Along its shores is a cemetery, a campsite, and a little village that shares its name. While many New Englanders travel to the quaint town to relax and unwind, not everyone knows its history— Island Pond was once the center of the Twelve Tribes, an organization hell-bent on emulating the first-century Christian church. But according to former members, the group's message eventually became isolating and toxic. And on a quiet June morning in 1984, over 90 state troopers and social workers prepared for a raid that would leave a lasting stain on the town. But our story actually begins a decade before, 1,100 miles away in Tennessee, where Albert Spriggs busily set down his roots. By that point, the 30-something had already lived a full life. He'd attended college, moved across the country twice, and had been married three times. With each experience, he picked up something new along the way. But nothing captured his imagination, quite like the counterculture attitude of the 1970s. At the height of the flower power era, Spriggs and thousands of others across the nation were searching for a new meaning. They wanted a better life, free of the violence, political strife, and intolerance they believed were corrupting the very soul of society. And many believed the only answers laid with God. They were members of the Jesus Movement, a revival of evangelical Christianity across the United States. Spriggs, like many others, found inspiration in the Bible's Book of Acts, which highlighted the first-century Christian church. They believed the passages written nearly 2,000 years before established a template that they could still follow in the modern era. To fully embrace the Spirit of God, they decided to emulate the early church as much as possible. 
So in the early 1970s, Spriggs, along with his fourth wife, Marsha, moved to a small brown house in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to start a new life. Almost immediately, they started reaching out to local churches to make connections and find the right spiritual community for them. In the process, they met plenty of people, many of them young and impressionable. The pair felt called to help the kids, so they founded a small independent church group. At first, it mostly consisted of pious teenagers who met once a week to discuss the Bible. Every Sunday, Spriggs and his wife took them to whichever church they belonged to at the moment. As the group grew, the couple started to call their home the Lighthouse, reflecting their aim to offer safe harbor to any young Christians who needed it. In time, they launched a local newsletter and referred to themselves as the Light Brigade. At that point, the Lighthouse resembled a typical Christian youth group. They embraced the look and style of the early 70s, wearing bell-bottoms, floral prints, and shaggy hair. Once the group could stand on its own two feet, Spriggs and Marsha regularly attended a single house of worship, the local First Presbyterian Church, and they took members of their youth group with them on Sundays. Over the next year, the lighthouse's popularity soared. Spriggs and Marsha were able to attract young people from vastly different backgrounds to their home. Some were sheltered suburbanites, others were runaways with nowhere else to turn. Eventually, all those people, likely around a few dozen, proved too much for the couple. They needed more space. But Eugene didn't want to ask for donations for a bigger home. So by 1973, they decided to start a business run by the young members of the church. The first yellow deli came out of necessity. They opened for service, dotting the cutesy yellow menus with Christian slogans like, we serve the fruit of the spirit. Spriggs hoped the business could not only turn a profit, but also attract new members. And it appears they were successful in both regards. Because not long after, Spriggs bought a bigger home that could host larger meetings and offered rooms for some members to stay. Even with the increased size and influence, Spriggs still attended the First Presbyterian Church. For a time, it was a nice codependent relationship. The church received an influx of young people, and Spriggs could use the place of worship to give himself a bit of credibility, even if the church's teachings didn't always align with his beliefs. As time passed, though, the tentative alliance grew strained, as more of Spriggs' unique teachings flew in the face of modern Christian dogma. For example, he eventually referred to Jesus as Yeshua, based on the Hebrew spelling. He believed it was more accurate to the Bible. He also revived some ancient Christian practices. First and foremost, he asked anyone who wanted to join him to give up all their earthly possessions. That meant the teenagers, some of whom were runaways, could work at the Yellow Deli for room and board, but they weren't entitled to a salary. Eventually, things reached a breaking point between the Presbyterian Church and Spriggs. In 1975, they had a major falling out over, of all things, the Super Bowl. That Sunday, Spriggs and a few other members went to the church for a service, only to find the doors locked. They were aghast. The house of the Lord, their temple of worship, was closed for a football game? It wouldn't stand. Spriggs took it as a cue to officially leave First Presbyterian. From there, Spriggs may have looked for a new church, but couldn't find any that adhered to his strict qualifications. Instead, he decided that if he wanted things done right, he'd have to head a congregation all on his own. With that, the Vine Christian community took hold in Chattanooga. Now that he was in control, Spriggs could teach whatever he wanted without interference. 
In sermons held at local parks, he distanced his group from what he saw as fickle Christianity. His followers dutifully studied the Word of God, and he believed they lived more spiritually fulfilled lives. It was a strong, compelling message, and at first the new congregation blossomed. By the mid to late 70s, at least 200 people had joined the fold. It was so successful that Spriggs was able to found five other Yellow Deli locations in the region. But with popularity came scrutiny. In March of 1978, a local college made a new policy. It banned its students from Spriggs Restaurant out of concerns they might become brainwashed. While the claim might seem extreme, it represented the fear the community felt. Then, a few months later, infamous cult leader Jim Jones orchestrated one of the largest mass murder-suicides in recorded history at his Jonestown compound in Guyana. The news shocked the world. In Chattanooga, people took a second look at Spriggs and his ilk, worried they were some kind of dangerous religious sect, too. Now, Spriggs was certainly in control of the rapidly growing Vine Christian community, but for the most part, those who joined at the time saw it as nothing more than a church, definitely not anything like Jonestown. But according to the Vine Christian community, people in Chattanooga started digging for dirt on the group. In the months that followed, the organization was accused of abuse and exploitation of vulnerable young people. The group tried to push back on the allegations, but former members spoke out. In a 1978 interview with the Chattanooga Times, one former member said they labored 16 to 18 hours a day, six days a week, in exchange for food and a place to stay. Some of them felt exhausted and exploited. Others even claimed they faced physical abuse at the hands of the group's leadership when they were young. Hearing this and other warnings from local church leaders, some families hired deprogrammers to whisk their loved ones away from Spriggs and what they perceived as a dangerous sect. Between 1975 and 1980, eight members of the Vine community were kidnapped and deprogrammed by the famous anti-cult deprogrammer Ted Patrick. It's easy to understand why the parents were alarmed. There had been some big changes in the Vine Christian community's dogma. The majority of members had stopped viewing Spriggs as a simple preacher. Now they believed he was a modern-day apostle, specially appointed by God to lead Christianity in a new direction. It only fed the fire of public speculation and criticism. All the accusations led to a rapid decline in membership. By early 1980, most of the Yellow Delis had closed. The entire organization seemed on the verge of collapse. But just when things were at their most dire, the group received a lifeline. Two of the members, a couple, were originally from Vermont, near the village of Island Pond. They had told some of their friends and relatives back home about Spriggs and recruited several potential members. While the Vine Christian community in Chattanooga was reduced to a shadow of its former self, an outpost of followers took hold up north. Eventually, the most ardent members packed up their things and joined them. Spriggs traded the muggy southern foothills of the Appalachians for the cool streams of Vermont. He set his sights on a golden future in Island Pond, a place he'd have complete control. Coming up. Spriggs establishes his congregation in Vermont. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. On behalf of ParCast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. 
That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. Those of you who've been with Parcast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the time Albert Eugene Spriggs and his wife Marcia arrived in Island Pond in 1980, there were already around 20 members of his congregation living in town. It was a far cry from the 200 or so people they'd recruited in Tennessee, but within a year, there were so many followers living in the small village, its population increased by 10%. And that was just the beginning. Just like they did in Chattanooga, the group decided to open a restaurant. They called the small cafe Common Sense. It sat right on Cross Street, the main thoroughfare in the center of Island Pond. Based on what former congregants said, the business model was similar to the Yellow Deli. Unpaid members of the church worked for room and board. But the group did make some changes. They started calling themselves the Northeast Kingdom Community Church. And they adopted a new attitude toward their neighbors. Spriggs had learned from his time in Chattanooga. The group was far less open to the public than before. Because they'd taken shelter in such a small village, it was easy for the group to cut ties with much of the outside world. Clearly, they were out to form their own independent spiritual community this time. They were almost starting from scratch. Most of the teens and college students that made up the group in Tennessee didn't follow Spriggs to Vermont. So the Northeast Kingdom Community Church was mostly populated by families and middle-aged adults. That meant plenty of young children were in the fold, too. And they were all under the watchful guidance of Elbert Spriggs. But since the big move, his message had only grown stricter and more esoteric. Spriggs still adamantly believed his group should emulate the first-century church, but he was no longer so focused on individual salvation. Instead, he started to preach that the apocalypse was imminent, and his church would play a major role in what was to come. Spriggs believed that his group would provide 144,000 male virgins to the world, who would eventually act as martyrs. Through them, humanity would move one step closer to Armageddon. 
There was just one catch. Spriggs had to make sure his members really were the elect, the believers chosen by God to be saved from calamity. In practice, that meant he became obsessed with making sure his congregation lived pure Christian lives, because only then could Yahshua return and usher them to paradise. According to the church, to achieve a pure life, members needed to set themselves apart from the world. Before entering the fold, many gave up their possessions and eventually cut ties with friends and families. When they joined, they were given traditional Hebrew names. They were also expected to abstain from watching television and going to the movies. The children weren't allowed to play with toys or eat candy. In addition, men and women of all ages were expected to dress modestly. Men needed to wear long-sleeved shirts and keep their hair tied neatly. Women were expected to wear loose-fitting blouses, long skirts, and a shawl to cover their hair. Women were also taught to be subservient to men in their daily lives. According to the church's website, God created woman to be a friend and a helper for man. She was created to be a wife and a mother, to raise children who would in turn know who they were created to be. Day-to-day life was an odd mix of the old and new. Think of them like an Amish community, but living within a secular American town in the 1980s. Every day at sunrise and sunset, an elder blew into a trumpet made out of a ram's horn. It signaled the start and end to the daily lessons. Members of the group regularly met up to worship and forgive each other for any lingering grievances. The practice was meant to strengthen their bonds and solidify a sense of community. During the week, devotees were encouraged to perfect skills like carpentry or leatherwork in their free time. As unusual as the arrangement was, things went well for the group during their first year in Island Pond. Former members recalled enjoying their free time down at the park and going fishing out on the lake. But soon, the unaffiliated locals started worrying. From their perspective, the strange group had shown up out of the blue to take over their town. It must have felt like an occupation. While the members appeared perfectly normal and pleasant, they weren't really a part of the tight-knit village. Instead, they were building their own exclusive, secretive community right in the middle of town. Island Pond changed as members of the church bought up more houses and recruited new members. By 1982, there were between 200 and 300 members, including over 100 children. Locals noticed that children in the church weren't attending school. By law, the church had to prove that the education they provided the children at home was equivalent to that of a public school. But according to local officials, it seemed like the Northeast Kingdom community never provided that. In 1979, Spriggs told a reporter, the state thinks they own the children, but the parents own them. We don't believe in the school system. Without this cooperation, the children were marked truant. With the infractions building and concerns in the community growing, authorities in Vermont started taking a serious look into the church. But they didn't gain much traction at first. The group's tight-lipped strategy kept the authorities at arm's length. However, familiar rumors of mistreatment once again started circulating. Now, not only were these kids not in school, but former members of the group began to report that the Northeast Kingdom Community Church was abusing them. In Tennessee, Spriggs was accused of exploitation, taking advantage of his group who were mostly teenagers. But now, his flock was made up of families with young children. And members of the Northeast Kingdom Community Church were definitely Old Testament when it came to discipline. Spriggs took inspiration from several Bible verses when it came to raising children. He often cited Proverbs 13, verse 24, which reads, 
Whoever spares the rod hates his child, but the one who loves his child is careful to discipline him. In other words, children should be subject to corporal punishment. Spriggs taught that physical discipline can be effective and is often necessary. On their website, the group explains, We love our children and consider them precious and wonderful. When they are disobedient or intentionally hurtful to others, we spank them with a small reed-like rod, which only inflicts pain and not damage. Journalist Julia Shears interviewed some former members for an article in Pacific Standard. They told her that they witnessed children being hit repeatedly, at first with balloon sticks, thin wooden rods, then tools like bamboo canes. And that was just for the most minor of infractions. One former member said she was left covered in bruises just for playing with a makeshift doll. Remember, children weren't allowed to have toys in the community. Spriggs believed harsh punishment would keep the children on the straight and narrow and ensure they were chosen to survive the second coming of Christ. The practice also likely kept the children from questioning their parents' teachings. But it didn't work on everyone. In 1983, a young member finally gave law enforcement the testimony they needed to further their investigations. Coming up, Island Pond authorities raid the Northeast Kingdom community. Now back to the story. In 1983, members of the Northeast Kingdom Community Church found themselves in a precarious position, even if they didn't know it. By that point, the group had about 300 members in the small village of Island Pond, Vermont. And while they'd kept their distance from the locals to avoid controversy, all the secrecy had backfired, sparking rumors about child abuse. And those fears appeared to be confirmed later that year, when a 13-year-old girl asked her father for help. To protect her identity, we'll refer to her as Darlene Chambers. Darlene told her father that an elder named Eddie Wiseman had repeatedly hit her with a balloon stick over several hours. The attack left her covered in marks from her ankles to her shoulders. Her father was enraged. He'd already been on the fence about leaving the group, but this was it. He went to the local authorities to report the incident. Eventually, he spoke to a social worker who had him give a statement. Soon after, the Chambers family left the group. His statement spurred state police to reignite their investigation into the church. Eddie Wiseman was accused of assault, but aside from Darlene and her parents, none of the other members would talk. Wiseman, maintaining his innocence, awaited trial for nearly a year. In that time, several former members made allegations that children in the church were subject to severe corporal punishment. So, in June of 1984, investigators got a court order to bring in seven church elders for questioning. But that didn't net them any useful information either. And everyone was released. Still worried that over a hundred children were actively being abused, police took the case up the chain of command. They brought their findings to the state's governor, Richard Snelling. Snelling gave the state troopers the green light to raid the group. Law enforcement hoped the move would help them gather more evidence and, ultimately, protect the children. In the early morning hours of June 22nd, authorities quietly gathered outside of town to plan their next moves. They couldn't just bust down the door at a single location. By that point, members of the Northeast Kingdom Community Church owned over 20 pieces of property in Island Pond. The police and social workers would need to split up and act systematically to gather everyone in a quick, coordinated burst. 
So around 6 a.m., they sprung into action, taking 112 children into protective custody. Scores of crying and confused kids were suddenly taken from their homes and bused to a municipal building in Newport, about 30 minutes away. Their parents rode with them in shock. As the hours passed, more children were taken into custody until the raid was finally complete. The children were held in police custody until mid-afternoon. During that time, their parents tried keeping calm, unsure of what to do next. Meanwhile, the authorities were dealing with legal red tape. They'd yet to interview or physically examine the children. They went before a judge to ask for 72-hour emergency detention orders. They claimed this would keep the kids safe while the investigation continued. But the judge wouldn't allow it. Beyond the testimony of Darlene Chambers, the evidence collected by police didn't hold much weight. The judge believed the raid never should have been okayed in the first place. All of the children and their parents were released. But in the days that followed, the local media pounced on the story. Some characterized the raid as a potential violation of religious freedom. And without any additional testimony or evidence, police couldn't get any charges to stick. Soon after, Darlene Chambers recanted her statement along with her father. He claimed that the hitting was not severe and only lasted five to ten minutes over a seven-hour period. He further stated he'd been pressured into making the allegation against Eddie Wiseman by a social worker. However, the social worker denied this. Now, without anyone to testify about the alleged abuse, Governor Snelling found himself in the lurch. Local media questioned his judgment and said the whole operation was a blunder. Snelling didn't apologize for taking action, and he thought calling it a raid was an exaggeration. Instead, he insisted that he thought he was doing the right thing and wanted to rescue the children. Ultimately, in the years that followed, the police action convinced Elbert Spriggs to make his congregation a little more open to the outside world. They even considered the raid as an important spiritual lesson, later celebrating the anniversary of that day. The church made more of an effort to build relationships with the surrounding community. Spriggs understood that the isolation hurt his group more than it helped. Beyond that, however, the leader may have felt a little empowered by the raid. His congregation had completely weathered the storm. And now the authorities would think twice before taking any further action against him. In the aftermath, the group's numbers rose again, but Spriggs wouldn't be satisfied until they hit the magic number of 144,000. He funneled more resources toward growing the congregation, even buying a full-on tour bus for the cause. It wasn't just any old junker. The community spent months welding together parts from two separate buses to create a unique double-decker vehicle. They called it the Peacemaker. It hit the road in 1987 for one of its first missions, to follow the Grateful Dead on tour across the U.S. The bus parked just outside the venue wherever the band was playing. Members placed a sign on the window encouraging people to stop by. Anyone curious enough to knock was treated to cookies, tea, first aid, and Sprigg's apocalyptic message. While it may seem like an odd recruitment strategy, it shows that Spriggs was aware of his target audience. He was approaching 50 now, and young people were no longer drawn to his style. So it made sense that they tried appealing to an older crowd. While Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir jammed, members of Spriggs' church eagerly brought new people into the fold. By the time the 90s rolled around, the group was larger than ever. Satellite congregations sprouted up beyond Island Pond, all over the U.S. In the midst of all the expansion, Spriggs changed the group's name once again. 
This time, he dubbed the organization 12 Tribes, a nod to the original 12 tribes of Israel mentioned in the Old Testament. Despite the growth, little else changed about the group's message. Likely because of their success in Island Pond, new churches were generally located in rural areas. In time, the group developed several farms run by their followers. Like always, the workers weren't paid a salary. According to the group's website, the income we earn is not our own individual means of support, but is voluntarily shared to meet whatever the pressing needs of the local community happen to be. Meanwhile, the recruitment process was streamlined. Members were encouraged to travel to win over new members. Young people called walkers wandered the countryside, distributing the 12 tribes newsletter. Some hitchhiked from town to town or approached lone farmhouses asking for water. They took advantage of moments like these to evangelize further. By 2009, the 12 tribes had around 3,000 members across three dozen communes, in places ranging from California to Germany. Spriggs even brought back the Yellow Deli name and built it into a massive chain. They still expected their members to voluntarily give up their possessions when joining. Devotees were expected to put in long hours at the restaurants without earning individual incomes, and 12 tribes continued to advocate for corporal punishment. Multiple former members have accused the group of exploitation at its restaurants and child abuse in its communes, but neither the group nor its members have been convicted of any felony crimes. And 12 Tribes is still thriving. Attendees at recent music festivals have spotted the group just outside the grounds. Countless young people have been enticed by the strange bus and its hippie owners. It's unknown how many people have joined 12 Tribes thanks to the Peacemaker, but at the very least, the bus has made a splash. In October of 2018, the Daily Mail posted a story about a missing man named Kevin Graves, who was last seen at a music festival in Michigan. The outlet reported that while Graves' whereabouts were unknown, several people told his family that he joined 12 tribes. They claimed the group targeted Graves because he may have been under the influence. It echoed the larger sentiment of other accusations made about the group. It's been suggested that 12 tribes members are expected to either convince their friends on the outside to join the group or cut off all contact with them. In news reports and on their website, 12 tribes claims they never bullied anyone into joining or forced them to disown their families. The website states, No one is compelled to stay who does not want to stay. We are a social order of volunteers. The group has persevered through plenty, and considering their success, Albert Spriggs must have felt a true sense of accomplishment. While he never reached the 144,000 he'd hoped for, his group inched ever closer to that goal. In January of 2021, at the age of 83, Spriggs passed away in his North Carolina home. And while some speculated that the group would collapse after his death, that's proven to be premature. The group remains active and is still subject to the public's scrutiny. Most recently, the 12 Tribes Commune near Denver has made headlines. On December 30, 2021, a fast-moving prairie fire raged across Boulder County. It quickly destroyed entire neighborhoods as residents fled in a panic. By the time a winter storm blew in to help extinguish the flames, over a thousand structures were destroyed, and at least one person was confirmed dead. Within a week, a curious video surfaced online, showing a shed on the 12 tribes commune engulfed in flames. Local newspapers reported that it may have been the source of the wildfire, but as of this recording, that hasn't been substantiated. The investigation is ongoing. 
If we've learned anything from 12 tribes, it's how easily a group can reinvent its image. Without the move to Island Pond in the 80s, it likely would have folded years ago. Groups like these aren't just influenced by their holy texts or their leader. Time and place also play an important role. Just like the counterculture movement molded Elbert Spriggs, Island Pond was essential to the trajectory of the 12 tribes. The real story can be found there, though it doesn't lead to any easy answers. Thanks again for tuning into this special episode of Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with the second stop on our summer road trip. With the 12 tribes in our rearview mirror, we're pointing our headlights south towards Scottsboro, Alabama. The sleepy little town was once the home of the most infamous snake handling sect in the entire country, the Church of God with signs following. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information about the 12 tribes, among the many sources we used, we found The 12 Tribes, Preparing the Bride for Yahshua's Return by Susan J. Palmer, extremely helpful to our research. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker, edited by Terrell Wells, with fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa. Exciting news, ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com slash cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.